Hey there, everyone. My name is Grant, and you are listening to History of the Modern Middle East, Episode 2, Pax Ottomanica. Before we go on to the narrative, I just want to apologize for this episode taking so long to come out. In Episode 0, I said to expect no more than one episode a month, and possibly even less than that. When I wrote that script, I didn't think things were going to get so busy that it would take three months to get an episode out. I have plenty of excuses, all ranging from school to work to family stuff, but during that time I was able to keep up a schedule of releasing videos on my YouTube channel, so ultimately the reason this episode took so long to finish was because I prioritized other projects over this one. I'm not going to say that this will change in the future. This podcast will always be a secondary project for me, but I am always working on it in some form. But I do expect to put out episodes far more frequently in the future. As I am writing, recording, and editing this episode, the spring semester of university is over, and I have the whole summer off to work on this and my other projects. On top of that, I have found a better writing and research process to use for future episodes. I'm hoping to get episode 3 out before the end of June 2017. This episode was originally going to cover twice as much as it is now, but I decided to split it up into two so I can get it to you sooner. So, if you are still subscribed to this podcast after three months of no updates, I thank you for your patience. And if you're listening to the podcast at some point in the future, then think of this as a bit of a historiographical context for this podcast. In our last episode, we covered about 2,000 years of history, from the prehistoric origins of the Turks to the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople. I'm afraid in that episode I could not be as detailed as I wanted. It's not that the period I was covering wasn't interesting, it's very interesting, and if you are interested in learning more about it, then you can check the show notes for that episode where I list the text I used, which contained far more information than I was able to put into that episode. I had to be brief in that episode because of the scope of this podcast. As I mentioned in episode zero, this is a podcast about the modern Middle East, which I defined as being 1900 to present. However, I couldn't tell the story of the modern Middle East without giving at least some background information. So think of the first few episodes of this podcast as being for those who don't plan on looking deeper into specific subjects. Anyways, with housekeeping out of the way, let's get to the main story. It's 1453, and the Eternal City has just been conquered by the Ottoman Turks. The city was looted, and a fifth of its wealth went to the Sultan. A large number of Greeks were enslaved, and a fair number also renounced their Christian faith by converting to Islam, and many of those who had helped in the defense of the city were executed. Christian ships, which had escaped the battle for Constantinople, spread word of the city's fall. Across Italy, people openly wept on hearing the news. Many had lost family and friends in the city. Many had lost business ties. And all had lost what had seemed to be a shining beacon of Christendom in the east. News spread quickest in the Mediterranean, but it would make its way north into Germany, France, and Britain. Mehmet II was commonly compared to the Beast of Revelations. There were even calls for a new crusade to be launched against the Turks, but none of this would come to fruition. What would begin, however, was a renewal of anti-Islamic sentiment in Europe. But for quite some time, though, Christendom refused to recognize Islam as a rival religion, and preferred to just refer to their sectarian enemies by ethnic or racial terms. Islamic control of the East had been an issue for European merchants since the initial conquest in the 7th century. The most profitable trade routes all came through the Middle East. Goods such as silks and spices traveled from China and India along numerous trade routes, the most famous of which being the Silk Road. 
By the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, Christians didn't have any direct contact with these trade routes themselves and were forced to go through the Ottoman Turks as middlemen. This solution suited the Italian city-states just fine, but the merchants and kingdoms of northern and western Europe weren't fans of paying marked-up prices for goods. Before Constantinople was even taken, some European powers had already begun looking for an alternative route to the east. Leading the way in this effort were the Portuguese. In the early 15th century, they had begun exploring the Atlantic, setting up colonies and ports in the Azores and the western coast of Africa. When news of the Turkish conquest reached the courts of western Europe, exploration efforts went into double time. By 1488, the Portuguese had rounded the Cape of Good Hope and began to build more port colonies on the coast of East Africa. These ports would be used by European sailors to traverse the long distance between Europe and the Far East. This didn't completely eliminate trade through the Ottomans, but it did set that process in motion. And of course, one of the biggest European attempts at circumventing the Ottoman Empire came in 1492, when Columbus sailed westward across the Atlantic Ocean, hoping to sail directly to Asia. As we all know, he didn't find Asia. But with the discovery of the Americas, the European economic attention shifted from east to west. However, this would take time to fully impact the Ottomans. And for the next few centuries, they would have their golden age, dominating North Africa, the Balkans, and the Eastern Mediterranean. The population of Constantinople had been decimated by the siege and the subsequent looting, and so the Sultan needed to repopulate the city. First, he used economic incentives, offering lower taxes than most of Europe and the rest of the empire. He also offered free or cheap land around the capital. When those methods proved to not be enough, he had whole communities of Muslims, Jews, and Christians forcibly relocated. After all this, the city's population was still only half the size it was in 1453 at the beginning of the siege. Though it would take time for the city's population to recover, Mehmet II couldn't rest there because no Muslim conquest is complete without a victory mosque. And what better way to show the domination of your faith over another than by transforming the greatest house of worship of your subordinate. The conversion of the Hagia Sophia from a church to a mosque began almost immediately. Most of the mosaics were painted over, with one exception being the four angels that were painted underneath the dome. Also preserved was the equestrian statue of Justinian, the serpent column of Delphi, and the Egyptian column, the latter two of which are still standing today. Mehmet II and many Muslims at the time saw these mosaics and structures as pagan, so why were they preserved? We can't be certain, but some think that Mehmet II was extremely superstitious, believing that the old pagan spirits still inhabited them, and so he did not want to face their wrath. Despite all this, on June 2nd, 1453, the first Friday prayers were held in the Hagia Sophia. Along with remodeling many of the buildings in the city, Mehmet II also had a palace built for himself in its center. And in this palace, the Sultan and his successors would seclude themselves from the rest of the population. Even when Ottoman statesmen and their officials would meet with the Sultan, he would be hidden behind a curtain or a veil. This was done in order to create a sense of mystery and mysticism around the Sultan. He would rarely, if ever, be seen in public. On top of all of that, Mehmet II renamed the city to its modern name, Istanbul. The name Istanbul was the Turkicized version of its Greek name, Istinpolin, meaning to the city. The city was sometimes referred to as Islambul, a pun by the city's Greek inhabitants. The names Istanbul and Constantinople were used side by side in the Ottoman Empire and later in the Republic of Turkey. However, the city would officially be renamed Istanbul in 1930. This name change would be commemorated in 1953 with a song by the four lads on the 500th anniversary of the Turkish conquest. 
Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, been a long time gone, old Constantinople, still it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. However, I prefer the faster tempo cover from They Might Be Giants. Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, been a long time gone, Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. The Ottomans had conquered a large amount of Byzantine territory, and this territory would require a well-oiled bureaucracy to administrate it. Luckily, the Byzantines had such an institution, which the Ottomans left largely intact. This was common amongst Muslim conquerors. The same was done after the initial Arab conquest in the 7th century. But the Ottomans didn't just need a functioning bureaucracy. They also needed to settle their issues of titles and honorifics. After Muhammad died, there was a dispute over who should succeed him as leader of the faithful. This new leader couldn't be another prophet, because according to the recitations of Muhammad, he was the last one. So this new leader needed to have the spiritual and martial authority Muhammad had, without the ability to receive new revelations. A succession crisis occurred after the prophet's death, which we will go into in a later episode. But suffice it to say that one of the prophet's closest companions, Abu Bakr, was chosen to lead the faithful and he adopted the title of Caliph, which can mean successor to the Prophet, servant of Allah, or any number of variations on those two meanings. Muhammad himself was not a Caliph, because he was not a successor, and the phrase Caliphate is derived from the term Caliph, and it simply refers to a realm ruled over by a Caliph, just as a kingdom is a realm ruled by a king. So initially, the powers that we recognize as those of church and state, or in the case of Islam, mosque and state, were held by the same person. The caliph would be the ultimate authority on religious questions and on matters of domestic and foreign policy. Over time, however, these roles would begin to separate. Under the Abbasids, the caliph became the titular leader of the caliphate, but his role in determining foreign and domestic policy would be reduced. The Abbasids rarely controlled their caliphate directly. They usually ruled through regional strongmen that paid lip service to the caliph, but acted in their own political interests. Many of these regional strongmen would adopt the title of sultan, who would take over control of domestic and foreign policy while leaving spiritual affairs to the caliph. A distant cousin of the last caliph fled to Cairo, which was controlled by the Mamluks, who gave him the title of caliph. But no one outside of Egypt recognized his authority, and most Sunni Muslims today don't recognize his reign as being legitimate. The Ottomans didn't attempt to recreate the Abbasid regime as the Mamluks did. Rather, the sultans themselves adopted the title of caliph. Sultan Murad I was the first to adopt this title after he claimed that God had chosen him. Some of his successors would also use the title, but it was never as important as that of Sultan. Surprisingly, Mehmet II, the conqueror of Constantinople, did not adopt the title, despite the fact that his success would have earned him the title in the eyes of any Muslim. By the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent, the title of Caliph was assumed to come with that of Sultan in the Ottoman Empire. The title of Sultan was used in their contacts with the West, while the title of Caliph was used in their correspondence with other Muslim powers, a sign of their suzerainty over them. Within the empire, society was legally segregated along sectarian lines. Different religious communities, referred to as millets, were given control of their own internal affairs, such as religious rights, education, justice, and social services, which led religious minorities around the Mediterranean to flock to the Ottoman Empire. 
1492, the last Muslim stronghold in Spain, Granada, fell to Aragon and Castile, which resulted in a wave of Muslim and Jewish migrants leaving Spain and moving into the Ottoman Empire. Many religious minorities, especially Jews and smaller Christian sects, preferred Ottoman rule over that of the Byzantines. The reasoning behind this was Ottoman ambivalence towards internal affairs of other religious groups. What difference did it make to a Muslim whether the Christians believed that Christ had two natures or one nature with two elements? The Muslim Turks didn't care about the doctrinal disputes within Christian sects so long as it didn't interrupt the governance of their empire. And even if it did, their solution would be to simply oppress all of them rather than picking a side. And there would be plenty of dimitude to go around because their conquests were not over. The first decade after the conquest, the Ottomans would focus their attention on the Balkans, starting with Serbia. Mehmet II had been fighting the Serbians before he redirected his focus onto Constantinople. He had signed a truce with them in order to focus on the Byzantines, but once the city was firmly under his control, he could finish off what he started in Serbia, which would take five years to be brought under Ottoman rule. After Serbia, the Ottomans invaded Bosnia, despite a truce they had had with its king, Stephen Tomasevic. When the Ottomans invaded, Stephen fled, but surrendered when the Ottoman general Mahmud Pasha caught up with him. He did so on the condition that he'd be allowed to go unharmed. The promise was given by Mahmud Pasha, but the Sultan would still order his execution. To avoid this fate, Stephen's brother Sigismund converted to Islam. After Bosnia became an Ottoman province, the Turks invaded Herzegovina, where the son of the local lord would also convert to Islam. The Christians of the Balkans already distrusted the Turks out of sheer xenophobia and sectarianism, but the actions of the Ottoman leaders seemed to justify every fear the Christians had. Not long after the conquest of Constantinople, the Genoese colony of Galta surrendered to the Ottomans in hopes of retaining their independence. Despite the Sultan promising this, he changed his mind and made the Christian residents subject to Islam's poll tax, the jizya. Things weren't looking good for the colonies of the Italian city-states. They relied on trade from the Black Sea, which was essentially an Ottoman lake after the fall of the city. The Sultan would send a fleet to take the Black Sea colonies of Genoa. They allied with the Tatars in the Crimea to aid in their conquest of the peninsula. The Tatars would remain allies of the Ottomans until the Russian conquest of the Crimea in the 18th century. Well, I guess I should call that the first Russian conquest, but I digress. They also seized Genoese colonies in the Aegean, such as Nufokia which possessed rich alum mines, which were very important in European textiles. They also got control of Enos, which gave them control of the salt trade. They then captured Athens, Naxos, Lesbos, and Chios, who agreed to pay tribute to the Sultan. However, the Christians of the Mediterranean would not take this lying down. 1463 saw the first counter-strike against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans had been threatening Venice's trading colonies in the Adriatic, so in July of 1463 they declared war. They managed to take control much of southern Greece, and later that year the King of Hungary invaded Ottoman-controlled Bosnia. The Pope and the Duke of Burgundy also contributed forces to the fight, but withdrew them by the end of 1464. The ruler of Albania, George Castriot, also known as Skanderberg, took the Venetian war against the Ottomans to renounce Ottoman suzerainty. This was not the first time he did so. He had been born a Christian, but converted to Islam in order to remain in power in Albania when the Ottomans invaded. Several times throughout his reign, he would renounce his religion and Ottoman control whenever it seemed practical. However, the Albanian forces were no match for those of the Ottomans. The Turks managed to take control of all of Albania except for a few outposts held by the Venetians. Skanderberg would die in 1468 while residing in a Venetian-controlled outpost. 
From the European perspective, the Ottomans were a monolithic threat, but on the inside, there were fractures that threatened the existence of the empire. They would have their hands full in Anatolia, subduing Muslim emirates. These emirates were competing with the Ottomans over the remaining enclaves of the Byzantine Empire. The Ottomans initially put their focus on the enclaves in the Balkans, and a practice of the Sultan would be to capture one of these enclaves and take a daughter of its leader into his harem. A conflict would occur between the Ottomans and the leader of the Akonyalu Confederation over the last Byzantine enclave in Anatolia. This enclave was ruled by the Komin family, one of the last Byzantine noble lines. The Akonyalu leader, Uzun Hassan, was married to the Komin princess, and therefore had an obligation to protect her family's position. He warned the Ottomans to leave the Komin alone, and that their lands were under his protection. Sultan Mehmet II disregarded this order and sent an army to capture the territory, where it would be harassed by the forces of Hassan. But after a six-week siege, the Komin surrendered, and like that, the last of the Byzantines were gone. Mehmet II ruled from Constantinople from 1453 until his death in 1481. By the end of his reign, the Ottoman Turks controlled most of modern-day Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, Macedonia, Albania, Kosovo, Montenegro, Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Romania, and the Black Sea coast of Ukraine. A map depicting these exact borders of the empire at this stage can be found in the show notes for this episode. Mehmet II had firm control over his imperial domain, but not over his own household. At the time of Mehmet II's death, he had two sons, Sem and Bayezid. Sem was a prince governor of the province of Karaman, while Bayezid was a governor of the province of Rum. Bayezid had been a commander at the eastern front of the Ottoman Empire. His father tried to portray himself as a successor to the Romans, but Bayezid rooted his intellect and authority within Islamic sources. With the death of the Sultan, there was an uncertainty as to which son should inherit the throne. Sem was closer to Istanbul and the preferred candidate by Mehmet II's general, Mehmed Pasha. However, both sons were sent message of their father's death. Mehmet Pasha hoped that Sem, being closer to Istanbul, would arrive first to claim the throne. However, the Janissaries favored Bayezid, and when they discovered Mehmed Pasha's plan, they killed him. This murder sent the capital into several days of rioting, and members of the government sent a message to Bayezid urging him to hurry to the capital. Sem was not determined by these events. However, the governors of Rumeli and Anadolu provinces blocked Sem's way to Istanbul. Bayezid arrived in Constantinople on May 22, 1481, and was proclaimed Sultan Bayezid II. Having been delayed on his way to Istanbul, Sam and his army decided to capture the old Ottoman capital of Bursa and set up his government there, proclaiming himself to be the rightful sultan. However, his position was weak, and so he sent an emissary to his brother in Istanbul and proposed that they partition the empire, but Bayezid refused. The two of them met in battle outside the city of Bursa, which forced Sem to flee, first back to Karaman and eventually down to Cairo the heart of Mamluk territory. While in Cairo, Sem collaborated with several deposed princes whose lands the Ottomans had conquered, and attempted to retake Anatolia, but failed. He would flee to the island of Rhodes, where he sought the aid of the Knights Hospitallers of St. John, who he authorized to negotiate with Bayezid II on his behalf. From there, Sem was sent to France, where he could be kept safe from his brother. The Knights used Sem as a bargaining chip with Bayezid II, promising to keep him under their control in exchange for a guarantee of peace, and an annual payment. Bayezid agreed to this, but the Sem saga was not over. The Mamluks asked the knights to send Sem back to Cairo, but the knights initially refused until the Mamluks and the Ottomans were at war. Pope Innocent VIII convinced King Charles of France to hand Sem over to the Vatican, so he could orchestrate a crusade to replace Bayezid II. However, no crusade would occur, 
Instead, Pope Innocent VIII struck a similar deal with the Ottomans that the Knights of Rhodes had. He promised to keep Sem under control in exchange for peace, money, and the return of several Christian relics that had been held in Constantinople. Sem would die in February of 1495, after being traded back to King Charles by Pope Alexander VI. The body of Sen would then be traded by King Charles to Prince Frederick of Naples in exchange for French prisoners taken during a recent war between the two. The body was then sent to Beza II in exchange for continued peace between Naples and the Ottomans, finally putting an end to Sem's threats to the empire. With the threat of Sem out of the way, Bayezid turned his attentions toward the Italian city-states. By 1500, the Ottomans managed to capture several islands in the Adriatic Sea. This fight with Venice, although victorious, led the Sultan to revamping the Ottoman navy. The early 16th century also saw much politicking between the sons of Bayezid II. Among the Ottomans, it was tradition to appoint the sons of the Sultan as governors of provinces. This served the dual roles of giving them experience and governance and getting them out of the capital, which made it less possible for them to overthrow the Sultan. The Sultan's favored son would be given a closer province to Istanbul than his brothers, which would make it easier for him to claim the throne after the death of their father. At this time, a new threat appeared in the east, the Safavids of Persia, who would challenge Ottoman dominion over the Middle East for the next several centuries. Sons of Sultan Bayezid would be very confrontational with Iran during the waning years of his reign. The rise of this dynasty and its conflicts with the Ottomans will be covered in later series of episodes about Iran. Toward the end of Bayezid II's reign, his two most likely successors were Ahmed, by favor, and Selim, by ambition. Selim had opposed his father's relaxed attitude towards the Safavids and wanted to engage with them directly. Selim, the third son, had been made the governor of the province of Trabzon, an impoverished borderlands region of the empire. The province was so inhospitable, he deserted it and went to stay in the court of his son's province in Kefa. His son was the future Suleiman the Magnificent. The second son of Bayezid, Prince Korkud, returned from exile in Egypt in 1511. He was not pleased when he learned that he had been appointed governor of the province of Tekka, while Selim had been appointed governor of Saruhan, a more desirable province due to its proximity to Istanbul. He left his appointed province and went north in an attempt to claim a better one, but was attacked by Shia rebels sponsored by the Safavids. These rebels were stopped by an army led by his favored son, Prince Ahmed. The rebellion shifted the balance of power among the sons of Bayezid. Selim, now governor of Sarahan, was closer to Istanbul than Ahmed, but he wanted to get his son, Suleiman, appointed governor of Bolu, but was blocked by Ahmed. Selim marched with an army up north to Edirne, where Bayezid II had relocated his court after an earthquake had hit the capital in 1509. Wishing to avoid a conflict, the Sultan ignored a rule that forbade princes from holding governorships outside of Anatolia, and granted him rule over Semendra, on the Danubian frontier in the Balkans. However, he quickly turned his army on his father, but lost, and was forced back into the governorship of Kefa. The Janissaries initiated a revolt, which happened to coincide with a visit from Prince Ahmed to Istanbul. They had declared their support for Selim, while the Shia rebels whom Ahmed had just recently put down declared their support for Ahmed. Ahmed began to act as though he were the Sultan, making governorship appointments while Selim was made commander-in-chief of the Ottoman army by his father, under pressure from the Janissaries. While still in Kefa, the Janissaries forcibly deposed Bayezid II, who died a month later, and proclaimed Selim the Sultan. After a campaign marked by chaos, Selim and Ahmed met in the Battle of Yenishir, where Ahmed would be killed, securing the throne for Selim I. With Bayezid gone, Selim was free to pursue his goals of attacking the Safavids. 
Despite putting down rebellion sponsored by the Persians, there were still those in the empire who were sympathetic to the Shia, even in northern Anatolia. In order to prevent these Shia militias, referred to as Kizilbas, from becoming a fifth column, he sent officials to register their names and locations and proceeded to arrest and massacre them by the thousands. He also sought to weaken the Safavids economically by closing off all trade between the two, preventing Persian silks from reaching Europe and European iron from reaching Persia. But before they could go to war, however, the Sultan needed religious justification. Caroline Finkel, author of Osman's Dream, from which much of this episode is based on, put it like this. In Islamic law, the only allowable justification for war of Muslim against Muslim is a religious one to enforce the sacred law or to check transgressions against it. This, it can be presumed, is why the more religious Bayezid II refused to go to war with Ismail I and the Safavids. He couldn't find a religious justification to his liking. So Selim I sought religious justification from the religious authorities in the empire. The Ottoman government engaged in a war of propaganda to justify war with the Persians. Saying that, according to the precepts of holy law, the Kizilbas, whose chief is Ismail, are unbelievers and heretics. The Sultan addressed the Shia Muslims in both empires, telling them that, You have subjected the upright community of Muhammad to your devious will and undermined the firm foundation of their faith. The coming war was no surprise to Ismail and the Safavids. Despite that, however, they were still unprepared. As is always the story with Persia, they had been dealing with the nomadic horse tribes attacking them from out of Central Asia. So when the Ottomans invaded, they did what the Russians would do whenever they were invaded from the West and used a scorch-earth policy to make the invasion as expensive as possible. On August 23rd, 1514, Selim and Ismail met in the Battle of Calderon, where the Safavids would be defeated, forcing Ismail to flee and one of his wives to be captured and given to an Ottoman statesman. Ismail saw allies among the Christian powers, but none were willing to attack the Ottomans. With the Persians subdued for the time being, the eyes of the Sultan turned south toward the Nile. The Mamluks in Egypt were brought under Ottoman influence in the early years of the 16th century. Mamluk trading vessels were harassed by pirates from Rhodes, whom the Mamluks were incapable of stopping. In exchange for protecting the Mediterranean trade, the Ottomans required the Mamluks to not make allies with European powers. The Mamluks had tried to stay out of the conflict between the Ottomans and the Safavids, refusing to aid either against the other, despite being informally a vassal to the Ottomans. Going to war with the Mamluks would not be as easily to justify as it was with the Persians, however. The Mamluks were Sunni and controlled the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, making them their official protectors. The Mamluk Sultanate had been weakened by complex interlocking problems. The war with Timurlang, financial malpractice, plague, drought, and famine led to the breakdown in Egyptian society. Along with that, the Portuguese had destroyed Mamluk commerce in the Indian Ocean, Red Sea, and Persian Gulf. The conflict would start when a Mamluk official in Aleppo sent a false report to the Sultan in Cairo that the Safavids had invaded Ottoman territory, to which the Mamluk Sultan responded by sending an army north to Aleppo to see for himself what was going on. The Ottomans interpreted this as an act of aggression and sought approval from the religious establishment who agreed on the grounds that whoever aids a heretic is themselves a heretic. With justification in hand, he proceeded to conquer Syria and Egypt in 1517, downgrading the Mamluks to the status of a ruling class rather than a ruling dynasty. According to Bernard Lewis, the Ottomans were able to defeat the Mamluks after having lost to them earlier because of the Ottomans' adoption of superior technology, while the Mamluks preferred to use more honorable weapons of the past. 
With Egypt now under Ottoman control, the trade blockade being implemented against the Safavids would become far more effective than just deporting Shia and Iranian communities within the empire. The silk trade coming west from China along trade routes going through Central Asia negatively impacted the economies of Iran, the Ottoman Empire, and Italy. The Ottomans were building up their arsenal, and in response to this, Shah Ismaili gave his blessing for another rebellion by the Kizilbas in 1520, which were put down in two battles in northern Anatolia. Sultan Selim I had led the army against the Kizilbas himself, and although he was victorious, he would die on his way back to Istanbul on September 22, 1520, and allowing his son, Suleiman the Magnificent, to succeed him to the throne, the first without bloodshed in several generations. Suleiman the Magnificent reigned during a period of Renaissance political giants, rulers such as Charles V and Ferdinand I of the Holy Roman Empire, Philip II of Spain, Francis I of France, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I of England, and Ivan the Terrible of Russia. The Reformation has destroyed the Catholic Church's monopoly on religious authority, which many historians mark as the beginning of the rise of absolutism. Suleiman would earn the title of Magnificent among his contemporaries by his policies, differing from those of his father. He declared that his reign would be marked by justice and made good on his promise by compensating merchants whom the blockade had harmed, and allowed communities that had been deported to other parts of the empire to return to their homes. After Selim's death, the governor of Damascus revolted against the Ottomans, but was put down and executed. This was followed up by another revolt in Egypt in 1524, where the governor tried to re-establish the Mamluk Sultanate with himself as Sultan, which ended the same as the revolt in Damascus. Egypt was one of the most profitable provinces of the empire, and so Suleiman wanted to protect his commercial interests in the Red and Arabian Seas, as well as the Persian Gulf. During the Mamluk period, the Portuguese had interfered in the Egyptian spice trade by sending fleets into the Red Sea, to which the Ottomans would respond by digging a canal between the Red Sea and the Nile, in hopes of circumventing the Portuguese trade route going around Africa. Later in Suleiman's reign, he sent a fleet from the Suez to capture Hormuz and Bahrain from the Portuguese. Hormuz would be captured in 1552, but Bahrain would remain under Portuguese hands until the 17th century, which is beyond the scope of this episode. The new sultan would also differentiate himself from the policies of his father in terms of foreign affairs. While Selim was hostile to the Safavids, Suleiman simply wanted to contain their influence, allowing the Shah to get distracted by fighting off Turkish tribes coming out of Central Asia. In 1524, Shah Ismaili I died, which resulted in a power struggle, all the while the Safavid state was being attacked by Turkish tribes. As the Safavid state weakened, governors of border provinces began to offer their submission to Suleiman, but after a couple Ottoman governors attempted to hand over their provinces to the Persians, Ottoman forces were sent to re-establish order and engage the Safavids by capturing the Shah's capital Tabriz in 1534 and then chasing after him. In pursuit of the new Shah, Tamasp, the Ottomans would capture the city of Baghdad, the capital of the former Abbasid Caliphate. In 1547, the brother of Shah Tamasp defected to the Ottomans and brought with him the Safavid province of Shirvan in the Caucasus. In 1548, Suleiman invaded Safavid territory, putting the Shah's brother at the head of the army, but little became of it, and when he returned home to Iran, he was killed on his brother's orders in 1549. In 1554, the two fought again, but it was a stalemate, resulting in the Treaty of Amasaya in 1555, which solidified control of previous Ottoman conquests. However, during this time, a challenger appeared. In 1547, the Ottomans would see a future rival begin to take shape in the north, when Ivan IV 
also known as Ivan the Terrible, was crowned Tsar of Russia. By 1552, he seized control of several Turkish tribal groups northwest of the Caspian Sea and earned his title as the Terrible by trying to force the Muslims there to convert to Orthodox Christianity. This was an attack on the Ottomans' self-proclaimed role of protecting all the trade routes to the Holy Land. The territory taken by the Muscovites held the main route used by Muslims in Central Asia to journey to Mecca and Medina, which would become restricted under Russian rule. The concept of great man history is frowned upon by most in academia, but it does serve as the best format for narratives like this. This narrative, much of which is focusing on Suleiman the Magnificent, would be incomplete without the stories of those who surrounded himself with. The first half of his reign is often marked by the partnership between Suleiman and his closest friend, Ibrahim. It's a common practice among Ottoman rulers before and after Suleiman for the close friends of the Sultan to serve as his right-hand man. The two of them were so close that Ibrahim married Suleiman's sister, Hadis, with a celebration that lasted 15 days. Ibrahim was the man behind much of the Sultan's pageantry, diplomacy, and military campaigns. Time and time again, Ibrahim Pasha earned Suleiman's praise, but he was not without rivals. One of his biggest rivals was a slave girl named Roxolana, who was born in a Slavic Orthodox Christian family in Western Ukraine and captured by Muslim raiders and enslaved. She entered the harem of Istanbul sometime during the reign of Selim I, but quickly attracted the attention of Suleiman, giving birth to their first child in 1521, eventually giving him another five. That was not supposed to happen. Concubines, such as Roxolana, were only allowed to give birth to a single son. This rule was put in place because every son had potential to claim the throne, and if there were too many sons running around, it could lead to a violent succession struggle, as we have already seen. This rule resulted in the mothers promoting their own son's interests in court and making sure they are in the best position when the sultan dies. It's a pretty cushy life being the concubine of a sultan, but it's never a good life being the concubine of a dead sultan. Because if someone else's child takes the throne, you will most likely be killed. To ensure the safety of herself and her children, she needed to replace the sultan's right-hand man, Ibrahim. It is believed that Roxolana and Ibrahim were enemies, with Ibrahim opposing her marriage to Suleiman in 1534. Ibrahim proposed Suleiman's eldest surviving son, Mustafa, but after the marriage, their fates were sealed. Conspiracies float all around Roxolana to this day, as many attribute the sultan's decision to execute Ibrahim in 1536 to her. When Suleiman took the throne, he had no challengers, but his successor would not have such luck. He had five sons that survived the early years of his rule. Mustafa, who was the son of Suleiman's first wife, along with Mehmed, Selim, Bayezid, and Kehangir, who were his children born to Roxolana. Mehmed died of smallpox in 1543, while Mustafa was executed in 1553 on accusations that he was planning to usurp the throne. But many blame Roxolana, especially after the death of Ibrahim Pasha. Sihangir died not long after, while campaigning against Iran. When Roxolana died in 1558, this left Bayezid and Selim alone to compete with each other without the moderating influence of their mother. Suleiman feared a coup coming from one of his surviving sons. In order to avoid the fate of his grandfather, he sent his remaining sons off to govern distant provinces. Bayezid, realizing this was the beginning of the final struggle for succession to the throne, gathered an army of Mustafa's former supporters, as well as other disaffected peoples, and marched to Amasaya in northern Anatolia. Suleiman ordered the governors to mobilize their forces in support of Selim, 
and the two met in battle near Konya, resulting in Bayezid fleeing to Iran in 1559. After several years of negotiations, Shah Tamasp agreed to hand over Bayezid and his sons in exchange for gold and gifts from Suleiman. But before the exchange could occur, they were executed in the Shah's capital by henchmen of Selim in 1562. By this point, the end was near for Suleiman, but he had one last task to do before he died. Suleiman would turn his focus westward many times during his reign. He led an imperial army to the city fortress of Belgrade in modern-day Serbia, and captured it after two months of siege in August 1521. He then turned his attention to the island of Rhodes, where the Christian knights surrendered after a five-month siege in December 1522. He appointed his best friend and administrator, Ibrahim Pasha, to command the imperial army into Hungary. In the marshes of Mohawks, the Ottomans would defeat the Hungarians on August 29, 1526, resulting in their king, Louis II, drowning while trying to escape. Louis II's death created a succession struggle, which resulted in the Austrian Archduke Ferdinand becoming king of Hungary, while his challenger, John Zapolia, would be picked up by the Ottomans and used as a puppet ruler of the portion of Hungary they controlled. Hungary was so easily defeated because the other major Christian powers of Europe, the Valois of France and Habsburgs of Austria were busy fighting each other in a series of wars, in which King Francis I was captured. During his captivity, envoys from France delivered a message to Suleiman requesting his assistance in freeing Francis and defeating Charles V. Francis would be released and promised to reciprocate the favor in the future. This marked the beginning of changing politics in Europe, where international relations were based more on political needs rather than sectarian similarities. In the spring of 1529, Suleiman set out with his army for Vienna, the capital of the Austrian Empire and the gateway to Western Europe. After over four months of marching from Istanbul to Vienna, the Sultan's armies besieged the city for nearly three weeks and failed. It was the first major failure of Suleiman's reign, but the battle was far more important for Christian Europe than it was for the Ottomans. If Vienna had fallen, the Habsburgs would have lost everything. If the Ottomans had succeeded, the most they would have had was the potential for enormous gains, but they wouldn't lose territory because of a loss. Suleiman would make peace with Ferdinand in 1533, just in time for Suleiman to turn his, his attentions east. But in 1538, John Zapolia made a pact with Ferdinand I, promising that on his death, the lands he controlled would go to him. But in 1540, John had a son, and he died two weeks later. Suleiman responded on behalf of John's son, also named John, and relieved a Habsburg siege of Zapolia's capital, Buda. The Sultan couldn't let Hungary remain outside his direct control, so southeastern Hungary was annexed into the Ottoman Empire while the infant son was granted rule over Transylvania as an Ottoman vassal. It would be two more decades before Suleiman would direct his full force into Europe again. In 1564, Ferdinand, King of Hungary and the Holy Roman Emperor, died, and was succeeded by his son Maximilian II. Maximilian immediately provoked the Ottomans by refusing to pay tribute to the Sultan, and so Suleiman decided to lead his army in person for the first time in 23 years. His army would begin laying siege to the fortress of Sigetvar in Hungary in August of 1566. It died before sunrise on September 7th. His Grand Vizier, Sokulu Mehmed Pasha, kept the death of the Sultan secret until after the fortress fell and Prince Selim could reach Constantinople, where he could be proclaimed Sultan Selim II. Unfortunately for the new Sultan, history will not be kind to him, as this is when many historians point 
to the beginning of the decline of the empire. I promise there won't be as long a wait for the next episode as there was for this one. If you want to know the sources used for this episode, then you can check the show notes at historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support it, you can do so by giving it a rating and a review on iTunes. Or if you would like to support this show more directly, then you can do so at Patreon. You can go to patreon.com and look up History of the Modern Middle East, or you can go to historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com and click on the Patreon link, which will take you straight to this podcast's Patreon page. Stay tuned for next time when we will cover the course of the Empire after Suleiman in Episode 3, Stagnant Sultanate. Thanks for listening.